to see, that you would give us soft hearts to receive and to be bent into accordance with your will. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Fifth century theologian and bishop Theodorat records the little we know about a, a monk from the eastern part of the, the Roman Empire who lived near, uh, right around uh, the end of the fourth century, named Telemachus. Telemachus lived in a monastery in the east, out in the wilds of Asia, and he felt the Lord leading him to, uh, to, uh, onto a pilgrimage to the city of Rome. He'd never been there, and so he traveled there. He arrived in the city of Rome uh, only to, to witness hundreds, if not thousands of people flocking to this large building, the Colosseum, and he went in there not knowing what he would encounter. And to his horror, he saw men fighting men to the death, gladiator battles, for, for the mere sport of it, for the entertainment. He, he witnessed crowds cheering this on, and he was, he was overwhelmed. He could not stomach what he was seeing, and so he leapt from his seat and ran out into the pitch and cried out, in the name of Christ, stop! The crowd, according to Theodoret, was furious, and they they mobbed him and stoned him to death right there. Other accounts say that they called to the gladiators to run him through and that one did. But either way, within moments, Telemachus lay dead in the middle of the Colosseum. History tells us that the emperor of Rome was so deeply moved by Telemachus' martyrdom that he issued a ban on all gladiator battles, gladiator fights. Telemachus loved Jesus. Telemachus had heard and believed the gospel. He had been transformed into a beatitude person. Telemachus was a peacemaker. He paid a high price. He lost his life. But history tells us that that was the last gladiator battle to happen in Rome. He did not die in vain. He died making peace. This morning we come to the seventh of eight Beatitudes where Jesus says, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Remember, the Beatitudes describe gospelized character. They describe what men and women, boys and girls, teenagers look like when the gospel is heard and believed, when the good news takes root in a person's heart and you begin to be transformed, your character reflects these qualities. These are not natural human qualities. No, these come by hearing and believing the gospel. When the Spirit of God has His way in us, he begins to change our character and our behavior and our motives and our ambition. Our ambitions, when the gospel takes root, the beatitudes are manifested in our lives. Remember also that these eight beatitudes are not describing eight different kinds of Christians, that, that one is poor in spirit, that another mourns, that another is meek, etc. No, these are eight interrelated inseparable qualities that, that all go together, work together, and belong to every single gospelized person. All who are in Christ increasingly manifest these character qualities. The seventh beatitude, 
follows naturally from the first six that we have already looked at. The gospelized become peacemakers. I want to do with you this morning five things. First, I want to remind you of Jewish messianic expectations in the time of Jesus. When Jesus pronounced this beatitude, what was going on in the the hearts and the minds of God's people. Second, I want to highlight for you both what Jesus does say and, and I want to make explicit what he does not say. Third, I want to reflect with you on the meaning of peace. What does that word mean? What does it mean to be a maker of peace? Fourth, I want to consider the promise And then fifth, I want to think with you about the necessary conditions of living lives of peacemaking. So first, the Jewish messianic expectations. Centuries before Jesus showed up, Israel had already become a divided nation. There was civil war, and it became two nations. The nation of Israel, ten tribes in the north, and the nation of Judah in the south. Because of Israel's persistent idolatry and wickedness, eventually they go into exile at the hands of the Assyrians in 722, never to return. They're often called the Ten Lost Tribes. The nation of Judah, the southern nation, fared a little bit better for a little bit longer, but they too uh, succumbed to idolatry, to wickedness, and around 586 they went into exile at the hands, this time, of the Babylonians. But God had made a promise that there would be a restoration, a return. And so 70 years later, some of God's people uh, moved back to Palestine. Some did, not all did. If you think ahead to the New Testament when the Apostle Paul is writing letters to, to churches around the empire, often in his travels he would encounter a Jewish synagogue. That's because not all of the Jews moved back. Some stayed. But some came back. They were expecting, though, this grand restoration, that the kingdom would return to the heights it once knew, the glory days, that a descendant of David would be king, and that they would be a great nation again. By the first century, when Jesus shows up, centuries have passed. The people are in the land but they remain merely a pawn on the international scene under the domination of one nation after another. First, it was the Persians, then the Greeks, then the Seleucids, now the Romans. And they are waiting, they are expecting that one day God will send a warrior Messiah, a king, who will rule politically and mightily as a warrior, conquering their enemies and reestablishing them. They expect that this Messiah will be both a political leader and a military leader, strong, and will reassert them as a nation on the global, uh, the global map. Martin Lloyd-Jones writes this, Here, with this beatitude, our Lord reminded them again at the very beginning that their whole idea was a complete fallacy. Even John the Baptist was not expecting what he encountered in Jesus. He sent his own disciples to Jesus and said, Are you the one that we were waiting for, or should we expect someone else? You see, Jesus' kingdom, the kingdom that was promised, is not a kingdom of this world. Jesus says that though the kingdom of God is breaking into this world, it is not of this world. His kingdom is about His will being done on earth as it is in heaven. But it is not of this world. And we see that that so very clearly in this beatitude. Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers. Not blessed are conquering 
armies. Not blessed are the military victors. Not blessed are the politically powerful. He says, blessed are the peacemakers. Second, what Jesus said and what Jesus did not say. Let's begin with what Jesus did not say. Jesus did not say, blessed are the peaceful. Blessed are those who, who enjoy tranquility, who establish that in their life. They find ways to, to experience peace. Blessed are the peaceful. Jesus does not say that. Jesus does not say, blessed are the peace lovers. Blessed are those who appreciate peace. I think of a, an at-home mom with a whole brood of kids and, and that someone comes, maybe dad, someone takes the kids away and there's an afternoon of, of peace. That would surely be a blessed experience, would it not, moms? But that's not what Jesus says. He does not say, blessed are the peace lovers. Jesus does not say, blessed are the peace seekers, those who look for peace, those who search for peace. He doesn't say that. Jesus does not even say, blessed are the peacekeepers, those who work hard to maintain peace. It's not what he says. He doesn't say any of those things. Jesus instead says, blessed are the peacemakers. Makers of peace. Really, Jesus? We can make peace? See, making peace is what God does. Making peace is, is divine work. It, it's what God sent his son into the world to, to bring peace. In, in Ephesians, we read that Jesus himself is our peace. He is the prince of peace. We celebrate the coming of the prince of peace. Peace is divine work. It's what God does. Can we really make peace? Yet that is what Jesus asserts here. That those in whom the gospel has taken root will become peacemakers. Men and women, ordinary people, teenagers, boys and girls, in whom the gospel has taken root will become peacemakers. That's what Jesus says. Blessed are the peacemakers. Third, let's think together about what this word peace means. And I want to begin by first saying what peace is not. Peace is not a description of some uh, experience of, of tranquility and quiet. I don't know what you picture, maybe being on a beach alone with a book. My kids tease me that I'm getting old. I have in my backyard now various four different bird feeders of kinds and and I love putting seeds out there and watching them. And now I, I have a hammock and I can string it up between a tree and a fence and go out there in the shade, the cool drink and a book, and sit there and birds flit in and out. And it's, it's just marvelous. But, but that's, that's not what Jesus is describing here. That might be a, a tiny little bit of taste of, of it, but Jesus is not describing peace is not this uh, tranquility, this quiet. That's not what peace is. Peace is not, uh, it's, neither is it, is it political and economic stability. The days in which Jesus showed up and walked in Palestine, Palestine was under Roman rule. Uh, the Roman Empire w was the dominant nation of the world, and 
under their rule, I mean, around the fringes of the empire, they fought off the, the barbarians, the hordes. But in Rome, they provided economic stability, political stability. They, they, it was called Pax Romana, Roman peace. That's not what Jesus means when he speaks of peace. Peace is not merely the absence of war. The silencing of guns does not mean that peace has come. Peace is not mere appeasement. If you've studied World War II and the years leading up to that, we know that British Prime Minister Neville Chamberlain, who appeased Hitler, what he did did not lead to peace. Avoiding conflict does not necessarily equal peace. Well, then what does Jesus mean when he speaks of peace? What does it mean when he says we are to make peace, to be makers of peace? What is this peace that gospelized humanity is supposed to make? I want to describe two scenarios for you. Imagine if you come with me into my neighborhood and we begin walking at one end of the block. And you notice immediately, as do I, that it's remarkably quiet. There's no one out, no one to see. And, and strange, I realize this, it's strange, there's no dogs barking. What you don't know is that probably a couple of my neighbors have taken their dogs to the vet after a nasty fight. We walk a little further, and I could introduce you to one of my neighbors. Well, I couldn't introduce you to him. I call him affectionately Angry Bill. I could point out his house. I actually haven't seen Angry Bill for, for many years now. Last time I saw him, he was really angry at me and yelled all kinds of things. He, he apparently didn't want to be invited to a block party. Walk a little bit further, and as we walk past another neighbor's house, I could point out the fact that there's another neighbor's car parked directly in front of his house with a, a sign taped to the inside of the window that says some nasty things. It seems quiet, seems peaceful. That's scenario number one. Scenario number two, you show up and the first thing you notice is chaos. The, the street is blocked off, there's barbecues out in the middle of the street, there's people everywhere, chairs and kids and, and people yelling. In fact, there's, there's both kids and adults running around on the street shooting each other with Nerf thumb blasters. And, and a nine square blocking the road. Uh, there's just lots of noise and lots of people and music and whatnot going on. I want to ask this question which of those scenarios is a scenario of peace? The second one. We need to look to the Old Testament to grasp what Jesus means when he speaks of peace, to get a fully, full-orbed sense of this concept. In Hebrew, there is a word behind what Jesus is saying. The word is shalom. Shalom speaks of wholeness, soundness, well-being. It's, it's life as God intends it. Life filled with harmony. Harmony between us and God Harmony horizontally between people, harmony with creation, harmony psychologically with ourselves, think mental illness, where, where that is gone and there's just, things are, are well, they're the way they're supposed to be. 
shalom, peace, life in fullness. There are various texts throughout Scripture through the Old Testament where this is described to us. Let me share one from Isaiah. The wolf, and imagine this, put on your thinking caps, imagine this with me. The wolf will live with the lamb. The leopard will lie down with the goat. The calf and the lion and the yearling together and a little child will lead them. Imagine that. A lion and a calf and a kid leading them. I don't know if you've ever encountered a lion up close. I shared this story once, so if you remember it, bear with me. I I used to be a youth pastor many, many years ago, and I took my youth group out in BC to the Vancouver Game Farm, and they had a lion cage. Uh, it It was two chain link fences, about 18 inches, 24 inches between the two fences. We were on one side, the lion was inside, and the lion was laying right up against the fence, the inner fence. And I don't know about you, but I find it, I love watching animals, but it's a little boring if they're just sleeping. And so I thought, I wonder if I can get his attention. And so standing there with my youth group, I lunged at the fence and yelled. The lion, evidently I surprised, and he lunged at the fence and roared. And I remember just this queasy weakness washing over me. I felt pretty... A lion and a calf. And one of the little ones in the nursery leading them. That's what we see, peace, shalom. We we read elsewhere in Isaiah 35, then the uh, the lame will leap like a deer, the mute tongue shall shout for joy, water will gush forth in the wilderness, streams in the desert. Those who are not healthy, those who are not well, the lame leaping, the mute shouting, singing, Water, where it was dry and barren. He will judge between the nations. He will settle disputes from any people. They will beat their swords into plowshares, their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. Shalom. Peace. Peace. This is where the biblical story is going. This is God's agenda. This is where all things will end. And we read this in the end of the book of Revelation. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look! God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. Shalom, peace, well-being, wholeness, that is God's agenda. That is where the biblical story ends. The curse of sin is reversed and all things are set right. Peace. Recomputing. Fourth, the promise. 
Our text says they will be called children of God. Literally, if you look in the original, it says they will be called sons of God. It's not gender-bound. In Jewish thought, the, the language of son often means a partaker of the character of. Whereas the word children speaks more of relationship. To speak of sonship speaks of likeness. When when my youngest son was much younger, I remember my dad, when he would come from B.C. and visit or we would go there, he said to me often, wow, Brennan is a spitting image of what you looked like at that age. There was a likeness. My son looked like me. That's the point here, that we will be called sons of God. We will be children of God. We will look like him. That's the point. God is a maker of peace. Jesus is the Prince of Peace. God is bent on peace. It's where His whole story is, is leading. And so when we participate in that divine vocation, when we live as peacemakers, we look like our Heavenly Father. We will be called the sons of God, the children of God. Fifth, the necessary conditions for a life of peacemaking. There are a number of things that we need to highlight, and, and the first is this, our posture before God. Daryl Johnson writes this, on page after page, the Bible puts its finger on the most basic cause of the unrest, anxiety, and strife that fills our world. It is that humanity has turned its back on our Maker. If you are with us this morning here or online, and you have never surrendered your life to Jesus, if you have not repented of your sin and put your faith in Jesus for His forgiveness, then the Bible tells us that you remain in rebellion against God, that you stand under His coming judgment, but it need not remain that way. God, in His love for you, has made a way, a provision for peace. He sent His Son, Jesus, here to die for you, to die for me, to bring peace. Jesus went to the cross and he suffered the penalty that I deserve and you deserve. And if, if we only repent and believe, we, we throw ourselves at Jesus, we receive his grace, his mercy, his righteousness, and we experience peace with God. Reconciliation, restoration, we're brought into relationship through surrendering to Jesus. And so I urge you, if you have not done that before, to surrender to Jesus today, to receive, to enter into the peace that Jesus accomplished in the cross. Let God be God. Johnson writes, the shalom Jesus brings into the world is experienced when we both kneel before the God who reigns, when we step off the throne of life and accept our place as creatures, as children, as followers. The first condition for living a life of peacemaking is to enter into the peace that God has made through Christ, to receive Him, to trust Him. That can happen for you today. Second, we need to consider the necessary, some other necessary qualifications of being a peacemaker. And if you've been with us over the last couple of months, you know these already. Peacemakers are first and foremost poor in spirit. They recognize that they come to God broken and empty-handed, spiritually bankrupt. They recognize 
their own need for God's grace that they have nothing to offer. Peacemakers are the poor in spirit. Second, peacemakers are those who mourn. They look around and they see the brokenness and the rebellion and the pain in this world and they look in their own hearts and they see the darkness, they see the, the violence and the anger of their own hearts and they weep over it because they know things are not the way they're supposed to be. Peacemakers, thirdly, are the meek. Remember, meekness is not weakness. Meekness is gentleness. Meekness is, is entrusting themselves to God and, to, and, and, and realizing that we don't need to fight for our own rights. We don't need to fight to protect our reputation or anything. We, we throw ourselves fully on God and we can put the interests of others ahead of our own. We can live gently. Fourth, peacemakers hunger and thirst for righteousness. They, they long for things to be the way they're supposed to be. They long to see people rightly related to God and rightly related to others in creation and themselves. They long for righteousness. Fifth, peacemakers are merciful. Peacemakers don't give people what they deserve because they know that from God they've received what they didn't deserve. They instead give kindness and pardon. And sixth, peacemakers are pure in heart. Means that they recognize that their hearts have been divided, but they, they, through the gospel, God transforms their hearts so that they become men and women, boys and girls, teenagers, who will one thing, who desire one thing, and that is they desire Jesus. Only the gospelized only those who have heard and believed and are being transformed by the good news that in Christ we are reconciled. In Christ we have experienced and entered into peace. Only the gospelized can do this, this divine work of peacemaking. Third, it is vital that we recognize that there is a cost in peacemaking. Martin Lloyd-Jones writes, before one can be a peacemaker, one really must be entirely delivered from self, from self-interest, from self-concern. Before you can be a peacemaker, you really must be entirely forgetful of self because as long as you are thinking about yourself and shielding yourself, you cannot be doing this work properly. Peacemaking. Peacemaking involves a cross. It was on a cross that God, through His Son Jesus, established peace with you and with me through his sacrificial love, through his vicarious suffering in my place. While I was his enemy, Jesus died for me, bearing what I deserve so that I might receive peace, that I might enter into and experience peace with God, my maker. Christ died that we might have peace with God. It is through a cross that peace came, and it is to a cross, to carry a cross, that we are called Christ says to all who will follow him, deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. We, we are called to bear a cross. We are called to turn the other cheek. We are called to never pay back evil for evil, to overcome evil with good. We are called to sacrificial love like the love of Christ. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who lost his life in a Nazi prison, said this, disciples of Jesus make peace by choosing to endure suffering themselves rather than inflicting it on others. 
peacemaking will cost you. It will cost me. You see, the cross of Jesus is both the source of new life and the cross of Jesus is also the pattern for our lives as the gospelized. We need to, as the church today, we need to hear and embrace this reality that the church is not to exist with some fortress mentality, circle the wagons, keep safe, keep protected. That is not our goal. Our goal is to live as the gospelized, to be peacemakers. Again, E. Stanley Jones writes this, the Beatitudes do not leave us gazing at heaven, they leave us gazing at a scarred and warring earth. We see the world, we see the chaos, we see the pain and the violence. And rather than running away, we run into the fray. We launch ourselves into the midst of the chaos and pain and violence, seeking to make peace. Peacemakers. That's who we're called to be. And it will be hard, it will be a struggle, it will involve suffering, it will cost us. And we will see that in January when we come back to the the last beatitude where Jesus will say this, blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness. You see, when we run into the fray, we will encounter persecution and opposition because some people around us don't want peace, and the enemy of God and all that is good, he doesn't want peace. And so when we are gospelized, when we step into the fray as peacemakers, we will sometimes find that we are crushed. What a remarkable call. What a dignified vocation to participate with God and Christ in His divine work of making peace, of living as agents of shalom. When the gospel takes root in our hearts, when we hear and believe the good news, when the Spirit of God has His way in us, we are changed. Our lives are transformed. We are gospelized. We become beatitude people. We become peacemakers. And Jesus Christ, who gave His life for us, declares over us, blessed are the peacemakers, for you will be called children of God. Amen.